Hi and welcome to episode 55 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast on African history, culture and politics. I'm Peter Lim. And I'm Peter Oleggi. Today our special guest is Dr. Derek Peterson. He received a PhD in African history from the University of Minnesota before moving on to the College of New Jersey and then taking up the directorship of the Center of African Studies at the University of Cambridge in 2004, where he remained until 2009. While in the UK, he was awarded the Philip Lieberhulme Prize and also in 2009, he was elected Fellow of the Royal Historical Society. Uh, that year, 2009, he moved to the History Department at the University of Michigan, where he is also affiliated with the Center for Afro-American and African Studies. Derek Peterson has published extensively, including several books, uh, starting with Creative Writing, Translation, Bookkeeping, and the Work of Imagination in Colonial Kenya, 2004 with Heinemann. And he has edited or co-edited several books, uh, for example, Recasting the Past, History Writing and Political Work in Modern Africa uh, with Giacomo Macola, Ohio University Press 2009. Um, that same year uh, with uh, Wangari Moriasal, Bodil Folke Fredriksen, and John Lonsdale, uh, published by Brill, entitled Writing for Kenya, Henry Moria's Life and Works, and last year, of Abolitionism and Imperialism in Britain, Africa, and the Atlantic. He was the editor of this volume published by the Ohio University Press. A very warm welcome to Professor Derek Peterson, the University of Michigan. Uh, welcome, uh, Professor Peterson, Derek. Uh, uh, perhaps we can start with uh, the theme of your paper at, at this year's African Studies Association conference, which is entitled, very interestingly, The Politics and Practice of Archive Work in Western Uganda. And you talk here about the, the intersection of archive work and the work of democracy, how Uganda's post-colonial politics have seen archives treated as trash, uh, to be cast aside with changing times. So let me ask you here a question that you pose there. How can historians or other social scientists conduct research on states that treat archives as trash? <laughs> well, it's a difficult question to, to answer. First, thank you very much to both of you for having me on this illustrious uh, forum. It's a great pleasure. Um, it's not right to say that all of Uganda's archives are, are, are seen to be trash, but rather I think that East Africa's states have differently engaged with history. So while in Kenya and in Tanzania, history has been seen to be a kind of forum for national political consolidation, inspirational lessons drawn from the past about how the present can be and the future can be organized. In Uganda, by contrast, history is often seen to be a kind of um, uh, a degradation, um, you know, the violence of uh, Obote one of the Idi Amin regime uh, of Obote II, um, all of this has made Uganda's contemporary politicians regard history not as a source of instruction, but rather as something to be discarded. And so the current government in Uganda, while commendably focused on development and on the uh, creation of new economic possibilities for Ugandans has also seen uh, history as something of, uh, of um, a distraction from the real work of developing the state. And so 
while in Kenya and Tanzania, uh, national archives are well provisioned with uh, well-trained uh, expert archivists with big buildings in Nairobi, for example, the National Archives is right in the center of town across from the Hilton Hotel in this great big white columned building formerly occupied by the Bank of India. In Uganda, by contrast, there's not even a sign that marks the location of the National Archives of Uganda. Uh, the collection is held in a basement below the National Agricultural Research Organization's offices. Um, the collection has until very recently been uncatalogued and while there's two very uh, in fact, there's now three very uh, um, well-intentioned and very careful archivists uh, who are responsible for the collection. They have little resource to work with. There's too much material, not enough space, and very little by way of financial backing to help them in their work of cataloging um, and of preserving that collection. The district archives in Uganda are in even more desperate uh, condition. Uh, district archives have been left in the uh, context in which they were created. And so in many places, old files have been chucked into the basement along with typewriters and bicycles uh, and uh, you know, cyclostyling machines and other kind of junk left over from uh, the practice of local government, from the work of local government. Um, and so uh, doing research in these kinds of local archival collections is exceedingly difficult. You have to really get your hands dirty uh, be willing to put on a pair of gloves, move the junk around, find the files at the bottom of the heap, and uh, re um, and read them. So, what um, myself and colleagues um, in Fort Portal have recently done um, is one way in which this kind of situation can be uh, addressed. I think we've um, so I've been working closely with Mountains of the Moon University, which is a new institution in Fort Portal. Uh, supported by the local government council. Uh, we've moved the archive formerly kept in the attic of the resident district commissioner's office, an attic which was leaking, there were wasps, uh, the papers got wet whenever it rained. We moved that collection last year from the attic to a storeroom at Mountains of the Moon University. Uh, and since that time, um, staff from MMU have been cataloging that collection, putting it in new boxes, and creating a digital record for preservation purposes of the whole thing. Uh, the work's being done by graduates of Mountains of the Moon University under the supervision of a colleague named Everest Gabirano. Um, Michigan and CAMP, the Cooperative African Africana Microform uh, Materials Project, that's the new acronym, I think. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, CAMP has supported this project very generously. The work's going forward as we speak, and uh, I think it does hold out one option among a spectrum of options in ways in which these local collections can be preserved for the benefit of Ugandans generally and also for historians. Yes, it's, it's a wonderful uh, model, a wonderful example of partnership, of disinterested uh, cooperation between historians, archivists, uh, and, and others uh, in, in two continents, in two countries, in two universities. Uh, and obviously in the rural areas, in regional districts around Africa, we have very similar pro uh, problems in thinking of Gondar in Ethiopia, Benguela in Angola, and even we had a lot of problems in Fort Hare in South Africa. In uh, focusing on these important issues of preservation, um, I wonder if I can uh, raise a more difficult and maybe sensitive issue, and that is sometimes 
particularly the national archivists uh, in, in all countries, not just in Africa, uh, have a, a certain hesitancy about the, the copying or the, even the temporary removal of parts of the national heritage. And uh, so in the past, there's been uh, tension or sensitivity, for instance, in Kenya about the, the, the massive microfilming project done by Syracuse University and my own university has a copy of those wonderful microfilms, but there, there were questions raised there about sort of cultural imperialism or digital plunder, and Michelle Pickover, the uh, curator of uh, historical papers at the University of the Witwatersrand in South Africa, has, has uh, criticised uh, this sort of um, uh, domination, if you like. And yet we also see, as you've outlined, attempts to... Uh, put the local people in the driving seat. And you mentioned the, that this work was being uh, directed by the uh, local officials. And so really the, the question here is, um, uh, what, is the, what are the uh, future prospects for the further development of these sorts of uh, projects, given what I'd perhaps be able to characterise as sort of a a protectiveness of national ministries, national archives towards the sharing of this data. Because even though we're living in an online digital world, I think there's also a, an aim by national archives in Africa as elsewhere to attract scholars to their archives physically. So how do, Derek, how do we resolve these conundrums in the long run? <laughs> well, first of all, I have to say I share with uh, with the with Michelle Pickover and others, uh, a suspicion, a worry about digitization um, as a strategy for archival preservation. Uh, once, first of all, it's important to say that archives that have been treated as junk, as in Uganda, have also been uh, unedited. They've been preserved. They've been kept from the hands of those who might otherwise wish to take. Uh, issue with the uncomfortable aspects of history that archives often contain. And so one of the blessings that comes from Uganda's archival landscape is while archives are not very well kept, uh, um, nonetheless, these collections often hold rich materials about the past um, that illuminate aspects of Uganda's history in a way uh, that in Kenya and Tanzania, these, these kinds of materials no longer exist in, in archival collections because those collections have been edited. Digitization is a, is a fundamentally modern project insofar as it kind of marshals up collections that uh, exist in a variety of formats into one singular uh, template where the collection can be, uh, you know, organized, studied, uh, and used by um, scholars, but also edited, controlled, by government officials who might wish to suppress aspects of an inconvenient history for their own benefit. Um, at the same time, digitization also allows Western institutions like my own institution, like MSU, like Syracuse, to get access to materials that uh, Africans rightly regard as their own national heritage. Um, and frankly, I have myself uh, little interest in, in creating uh, or an enabling a situation in which collections from Eastern Africa are available for scholars and students in, in Ann Arbor who can sit in the comfort of their uh, library chairs and read these collections without ever heading off to the, context, the places where they were created. 
I think that that um, my own my own sort of view is that digitization holds out tremendous possibilities, but that for preservation and for the popularization of archives, but that a kind of access strategy needs to be worked out so that collections access to collections can be limited in such a way as to allow institutions like MMU to continue to exercise a proprietor a role as proprietor of these collections for the benefit of MMU's own faculty and staff. I think, in other words, digitization on a limited access to digital archives ought to be limited in such a way as to require researchers and students from the global north to go to uh, local institutions in uh, African contexts to read the whole collection, to interact with the scholars and students who are act as curators for these materials, to contribute to the life of, of the places where they're kept intellectually and materially as well. Um, if anything, digitization ought to be a means of advertising archival collections, of alerting students to their reach and of recruiting them, therefore, to go off to uh, uh, African institutions to make use of these collections. Digital, digital collections also are very useful for African institutions who wish to allow their own students to uh, make use of materials. Uh, the hope is that in, at Mountains of the Moon University, the digital archive, once it's properly in place, will be used by research students from MMU, from Makedade, from other Ugandan institutions uh, as they write their thesis projects, as they conduct research about their families, about the politics of their grandfather's time, their grandmother's time. Uh, in other words, digitization need not be expropriation. It can be, I hope, calibrated. Access can be calibrated in such a way as to advantage the institutions that take custody of these collections. If access in the global north is limited, uh, that seems to me to be the way forward. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I think it's important to point out here that in the case of Michigan State, uh, you know, we, we are working with Matrix here in the history department that we really emphasize the mutual reciprocity of these arrangements with African institutions and the open access uh, to these digital uh, collections. So, you know, unlike other digital projects out there, we're not behind a paywall uh, of any kind. And also the under the new agreements that have been signed in the last few years, the African partners have full control over their uh, digital material. We receive a copy, uh, but the, the masters, whether it's video, audio, or uh, other materials, uh, remain uh, on African soil. So that distinguishes, I think, uh, Michigan State from, say, such a problematic venture uh, as the one mentioned by Peter earlier. I think it was Syracuse University. Uh, there are several others. University of Connecticut also has had uh, issues in the past. And I think um, it's important to keep in mind that African uh, institutions and NGOs uh, need to retain control over this material as, as Derek was suggesting and but also keep it open access so that you know this can lead to a further democratization of knowledge produced in Africa. Uh, I, think, I think that's that's very very important. Now why should I all... Also, yeah. I just say also that I think that we have to remember that archives are not only for scholars to use but that ideally open access archives um, in African institutions can be a foundation on which democratic activists can get access to the material they need to hold government leaders responsible. This is not simply a concern for scholars, uh, but rather it's a concern to do with citizenship. How uh, other than through the study of history can East Africa's or Africa's citizens know 
about the historical basis of their their rights. Uh, this, is a, this, is a, this, this is a very big issue in in recent decades, of course, because often the the archives in the last few years are very thin. <laughs> as, as we were talking earlier, the the politicisation of archives or the the thinning down of archives is often a I would imagine a response of the state in certain countries to to hide material or seclude material about sensitive issues. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's through the study of history I think that people can East Africans or Africans generally can learn what the achievement of their rights has cost their their ancestors. Uh, and it's it's in other words uh, only through the study of history that that citizens can recognize how the abuse of state power abusive state power violates the contracts that had earlier been struck between citizens and rulers. In other words, archives are fundamental to the operation of democratic politics. And I think Peter Lim rightly questions whether the thinning, the editing of archives in other contexts is not, among other things, a means by which dictatorial regimes seek to control uh, citizens' access to potentially subversive historical information. <laughs> And speaking of subversive historical information, your uh, recent edited uh, volume, Recasting the Past, with Giacomo Macola, um, talks uh, at great length, examines what you call homespun historians. In other words, historians who do history outside the academy. Um, and you, there's a quote, there's a phrase that you use in the introduction that I wanted you to, to expand on. And that is, you say, homespun historians were the drill sergeants mustering up Africa's political communities. Uh, what did you mean by that? Yeah, so Recasting the Past was a book that was published in 2009. Uh, myself and my colleague Giacomo Macola uh, brought it out. Um, it was an effort, it is an effort really, to find a kind of genealogy for African history outside the university. So the argument of the book was that there was a whole swathe, there still is a whole swathe of, of history, research, of writing, of uh, dialogue about the past that takes place largely in vernacular languages uh, and that's conducted by people who are not linked with formal academic institutions. Um, so in Recasting the Past, we studied, for example, uh, the work of uh, Petros Lamula, who was a political activist uh, in the early 20th century uh, who, uh, in the Zulu language, published a series of historical works about the history of the Zulu people as a way of challenging the monopoly on history that the Zulu king possessed. Malamula was, among other things, a Republican who wanted to open up uh, Zulu politics to other ways of seeing uh, the past and the future, and he found in history writing a means of mobilizing Zulu people around in a different way uh, outside the, the, the sort of regime of the Zulu state. Uh, uh, scholars like Lamula um, um, were doing work all over colonial Africa, working in vernacular languages, publishing texts. I, we called them drill sergeants, uh, mustering up political communities, because we see the work that they did very often as being linked to the work of political self-constitution. Uh, one um, uh, person who I wrote about is named Isaiah Mukinane, who in the 1950s became the president of what he called the Konzo Life History Research Society, uh, conducted research for the course of, over the course of several years in Western Uganda, 
uh, and used that research material in 1962 as evidence with which to explain why his uh, separatist state called Rwenzururu ought to break away from the state of Uganda and form its own government. Historical research was often partisan. Uh, this kind of historical research was often partisan, deeply interested in, uh, in, in politics, self-interested, uh, um, very often self-advancing, conducted by people who were not so much linked to professional institutions uh, at the university, but rather uh, conducted out of their own financial resources in time uh, that sort of at the margins of busy lives uh, that were dedicated to other kinds of tasks. And it's so, it's for this reason we call them homespun historians, a, a way, a term that allowed us to capture the kind of self-made character of the historical writing that these uh, individuals uh, produced. The effort here was to help us see, as professional historians, how uh, our own field the professional study of African history, which developed really in the 1960s during the era of African independence politically, how the professional field of African history related to an older, much more popular enterprise of vernacular language history writing, which the first professional historians often disavowed, but which nonetheless provided a kind of foundation on which the earliest university texts on African history drew. Um, so. Uh, it's that genealogy, that 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 prehistory of African history, that the edited book, recasting the past, tried to to capture. Perhaps I could uh, uh, try and relate this to African archives, past and present. Uh, the archives, if we can call it, of these popular intellectuals are often even more furtive than the state or local archives. They're uh, uh, hiding in trunks or they're lost forever, and then. Um, in contemporary times, today, there's a lot of material that uh, is in danger of being lost. There's cell phone conversations, there are uh, the voices of people, for instance, in North Africa at the moment, uh, the communications on Twitter, uh, a whole range of, of forms, different forms of, uh, of human communication. And I'm just wondering how perhaps we might look at preserving the uh, these sort of African archives both in the past and present, both in the popular intellectual sense and the contemporary sense. The, the uh, International Institute of Social History in Amsterdam is opening an office this year in Addis Ababa with an intention to try and scoop up these uh, these, uh, this sort of bric-a-brac, uh, this bric-a-brac that comes, that emanates from popular struggles and, and other uh, scenarios. And uh, in this, of course, the oral dimension, the, you mentioned the African language dimension, this is extremely important. Um, so I'm wondering how we might do a better job of preserving and uh, dishing up, as you said earlier, in a digital form perhaps, or microfilm, or in other forms. How can we... Uh, better preserve and and present these discourses, both in the past and the present? This is a very difficult question to know how to answer, uh, largely because the kinds of papers that, that uh, homespun historians produced um, are deeply personal in character. One archive that I've worked with, uh, for example, are the papers of you intellectual Gakara Wabanjao, who was held as a detainee in central Kenya for eight years uh, in Mau Mau detention camps 
accused by the British government of Kenya of fomenting Mau Mau ideology. While he was kept in detention camps, he produced an astonishing variety of written material. Uh, and as Peter suggests, it's multi-generic in character. There's poetry, there's songs, there's ethnographic writing, uh, and there's love letters between himself and his wife, uh, Shifra Waidire. Um, this uh, archival collection um, exists in Karatina. It's kept in the hands of Kakada's wife. Kakada died a few years ago. Uh, um, she, uh, quite rightly, and her her children regard this as um, you know a kind of personal memento of their uh, father and, and husband's life. Uh, but they also recognize Kakada's role in constituting a kind of Kikuyu intellectual history through his writing. Kakata, after his release from Mamau detention camps, went on to be Kenya's first vernacular language publisher. He bought a printing press. He published over the course of 30 years dozens of books in Kenya's vernacular languages uh, and played a very important role in the life of the mind of post-colonial Kenya. And so um, a few years ago, Shifra Waidire, Kakata's wife, allowed colleagues from Yale University to photocopy part of that collection, uh, largely for purposes of preservation. The collection was uh, organized, cataloged by myself, the photocopies that is, and microfilmed. The microfilm is in Yale University Library and in the archives of the Kenya National Archives. Uh, in this way, um, we've tried to bring Gakata's writing to a wider public while also preserving the family's interest in in limiting uh you know outsiders access to uh the writings of this this great man and he was a great man he's he's his his thought helped to constitute today's uh kenyan politics in a, a very important way how more ephemeral material like cell phone conversations and oral testimonies can be preserved is outside my my bailiwick i i don't uh um, have much thought about that, except to say that that um, the kinds of homespun historians who I've described, Gakata Wabanjao, for example, were deeply invested in recording uh, aspects of what they regarded to be the wisdom of their fathers, the oral wisdom of their fathers, on the page. Gakata uh, and others like him um, thought of themselves as being involved in a kind of patriotic task of, of putting elder's testimony on the page before it was too late. Um, thus, very often the first collections of African proverbs were published uh, um, by Christian converts who thought that their command over literacy was a means by which they could use, uh, sort of uh, preserve elder's wisdom against the decay of, of amnesia, um, the passing of time. And so it's not to say, I, I don't think it's right to kind of cast um, uh, an opposition between the writing that homespun historians conducted and the oral wisdom of of uh, of, uh, of elders. Rather, uh, there's a dialogue that takes place as um, people like Akata go out, conduct interviews, write down wisdom, proverbs, bits of discourse that they hear in their on the page. Uh, and it's that it's for that reason that these these kinds of collections are enormously important and. Uh, ought to be at the center of archive preservation projects of the kind that you're describing, Peter. Now, a lot of these alternative archives uh, that homespun historians have created on African soil 
are the material on which your forthcoming book entitled Pilgrims and Patriots, uh, Conversion, Descent, and the Making of Civil Society Societies in East Africa uh, are based on. Um, you've got some fascinating archives that you've dug up by people named uh, Joe Church, uh, William Nagenda, and, and others in Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about these Christian revivals uh, uh, taking place in East Africa, and in particular how these uh, um, uh, civil societies were shaped by these, these intellectuals and these uh, revivalist communities? Yeah. So, uh, I've been asked to talk about this book, uh, which I'm just happily finishing up at the moment. It will be published next year on Cambridge University Press. The provisional title is Pilgrims and Patriots. Uh, that may change once the press and I uh, debate <laughs> the title more fully. And it's an effort, really, to place um, two contending strands of political practice in conversation with each other. Uh, I've done research in six, in seven different parts of Eastern Africa using local government archives, conducting interviews, uh, digging through the personal papers of the people like those that I've just been talking about um, in an effort to unpack the genealogy of Eastern Africa's patriotisms. The homespun historians about whom I was talking earlier were the architects of East Africa's ethnic communities. So Gakata Wawanjao, this gentleman I talked about earlier, uh, helped to constitute the Kikuyu as a people through his historical investigations into the Kikuyu past. Um, in researching the past, people like Gakata found uh, a kind of standard against which to judge contemporary politics uh, and to measure uh, the indiscipline of their contemporary time against their forefathers' wisdom. In other words, Patriotic history was very often deeply conservative and also very deeply patriarchal. Uh, Gakara Wawanjao and others like him regarded the past not as a means by which to open up politics to a wide variety of actors, but rather as a resource with which to find codified standards of behavior against which to judge uh, the actions of the young, against which to judge the actions of independent women. Um, and against which also to judge the actions of Christian revivalists, about whom the other half of my new book is, is focused, or on whom uh, the, the other half of the new book is focused. So the book places patriotic uh, um, act, sort of East Africa's patriots in dialogue with East African revivalists. The revival was a Christian conversion movement that began in Rwanda in the late 1930s, spread through Uganda, Tanzania, Zaire, Southern Sudan, uh, Kenya, and elsewhere over the course of the 1940s and 50s. Its converts uh, regarded the practice of personal testimony as a critical religious discipline. In, in other words, they would uh, constantly uh, develop testimonies that described their passage from sin to new life that narrated in great detail the specific sins that they'd once been engaged in as a way of dramatizing how they passed from this old life of corruption to a new life of, of, uh, of redemption. This autobiographical practice um, constantly reiterated earned revivalists uh, a bad reputation in East Africa's politics. And so the book focuses on East Africa's patriots 
efforts to rein in revivalists' testimonies. It's a book about, in other words, how patriotic, uh, um, the patriotic architects of East Africa's ethnic communities sought to codify behavior, to discipline men and women, uh, and to produce a kind of disciplined public, a, a public sphere uh, for discourse, uh, which pushed deviant forms of behavior like um, uh, revivalists to the margins. Um, so um, while today we regard ethnic identity as being a kind of source of uh, a kind of inheritance handed down from the past um, in a direct kind of lineage, this book is an effort to find a genealogy for East Africa's patriotisms that emphasizes the contention, the debate that took place within ethnic communities as patriots sought to marshal up constituencies and place other forms of behavior at the margins of the public sphere. Well, we look forward very much to that book and also the successful fruition of the uh, important archival projects that you're working on, Derek. And I'm sure that Derek's multifaceted work will inspire others to get involved in the preservation and the writing of the African past and present. Thank you very much uh, for talking to Africa past and present. A pleasure. Thank you. Africa Past and Present is produced by Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington. Technical assistance is provided by Alicia Scheel and the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes, and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L dot O-R-G. Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes and other podcatcher sites. To get in touch with us, send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.